Well, David, I'll, I'll, I'll have my turn one of these days, all right? So we'll be able to get back at you. Well, it's a real privilege to have the opportunity to speak to all you young people this morning, and I kind of feel that uh, I'm kind of the tail end of the week we've had. And uh, if you think back about it, we've had absolutely a marvelous week in Bible conference. Uh, we began with W.A. Criswell on, on Monday morning, and to see a giant of, a, of the faith, a man who has pastored the same church for over 50 years, and, and just to see that great testimony, and then to have uh, Ken Sarles come and, and teach us, as well as one of our most beloved speakers at the college, uh, Lester Begg, and then to conclude with, uh, with Tony Evans on Wednesday night. And I was thinking last night and, t- and, uh, and this morning about what I would share with you this morning or speak to you about, and I want to kind of continue on the theme that Dr. Evans left us with on Wednesday evening. If you recall, Tony spoke to us out of Matthew chapter 5, and he really challenged us to be salt and light. And Dr. Evans proceeded to tell us that most Christians tend to worry so much about the darkness out there, about the culture we find ourselves in, while at the same time not really tending their own spiritual gardens. And in reality, the reason we have so many problems in the culture today is because Christians really aren't being what they ought to be for God. Well, as I began to contemplate what the challenge that Tony had given to us, uh, I began, I asked myself another question, and the question was simply this. Why do we as Christians struggle so much in this area of contending with the culture? Why is it so often that our light in reality is very, very dim? And I would submit to you that Satan really comes at us in an indirect way. And where Satan really gets to us, in reality, is through the culture. We live in a culture today that is vastly different than the one that I grew up in in the 40s and the 50s. Today our culture is dominated by a meism, a selfism, a narcissism, if you will, that raises its ugly head in every institution, whether it be in government, education, athletics, the church, or the family. We see today in our culture a lack of commitment to core moral values, if you will. Honesty is something that we must search for. Respect for others is missing. There seems to be no personal responsibility. We blame everybody but ourselves for the problems that so often we inflict upon ourselves. There is very little sense of civic duty, if you will. This kind of culture then produces a person that lives in a state of restlessness who is perpetually unsatisfied. It's a person with no real interest in the future because the person has no real interest in the past. This person finds it very, very difficult to institutionalize happy associations or to create, if you will, a store of living memories. 
Our relationships tend to be shallow and passing. We're perpetually on the move, pampering our bodies, stroking our egos, manipulating those around us. Most of us today in America are physically fit and mentally soft. We're told that the government will take care of us, that we have a right to an education, and that even as a Christian, we can demand health and wealth. We have rights to a suburban home, to a swimming pool, to a motor home, and to a VCR. That's the kind of culture that we find ourselves in today, and that's the kind of influence that our culture is having upon us. Why do we then struggle so much with this culture? James tells us in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, that we are tempted by our own evil desires and enticed by these desires. And when they, these desires are allowed to dominate us, these desires give birth to sin. The point I'm trying to make, young people, is simply this. Most of the time, we are not faced with a head-on assault by Satan. The pressure comes at us through the back door, through the culture, if you will. And I believe the greatest challenge, then, that we face as Christians is to understand where this temptation comes from and then how to react to it. As, Lew as Tony Evans said the other evening, we are a counterculture, but we need to understand that the attacks come at us, for the most part, indirectly. Now, where do these attacks come from? And I believe that the Scriptures are very, very clear as to the heart of these attacks. And let me trace them for you, if I, if I might, through the Scriptures for a moment in three major texts. Go to Genesis chapter 3, because here we see it for the first time. We see Satan's contest with Adam and Eve, if you will. And it's very interesting, once again, the subtlety of this contest or this confrontation. Look in, chap look in verse 6 of chapter 3. We see these words. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. The point I'm making is simply this. In the Garden of Eden, we see the first temptations. And the temptations have to do with what the Apostle John says back over in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Here are the temptations. Good for food. Lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes lust of the eyes, and desired to make one wise the pride of life. Now go to Matthew chapter 4, and we'll see this same assault on none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4. As you know, our Lord had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And look what happens when Satan comes to him in verse 3 of chapter 4. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made into bread. There it is again. The lust of the flesh. Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, go down to verse 
Go down to verse 8 first. And the devil taketh him up into an exceedingly high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The lust of the eyes. Now go back up to verse 6. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against the stone. The pride of life. The temptation is exactly the same. Now go to 1 John chapter 2, if you will, and we'll camp, we'll camp there the rest of the morning. John says in these verses, beginning in verse 15, Love not the world. It is a command. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now the word for world in this particular passage is the Greek word cosmos. And what it means is the orderly arrangement of things. John is not talking here about the mass of the earth. He's talking about, if you will, the world system, the establishment, its values, its trends, its elites who control it. He goes on to say, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Now, what is the word lust? Let me give you a very brief definition. Lusts are, le are legitimate desires pursued or exalted to a point of idolatry. Let me give you that again. Lust are legitimate desires pursued or exalted to a point of idolatry. Now John goes on to list these kinds of lusts. And look what he says, beginning in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. Once again, the first great category what, that Satan uses out of the culture to tempt us and to make us ineffective for God's kingdom. The lust of the flesh. Let me give you another word for it. A word that you'll understand. Selfishness. Self-centeredness. In America today, we have individualism run wild. Individualism is the greatest value that everyone seeks today in America. Children divorce their parents. They follow their own desires. They will not care for their parents as their parents age. We see the pro-choice movement. We see the, the degradation of art in America. The point is simply this. Selfishness has to do with all actions consciously done for the benefit of oneself. Did you hear that? All actions. Every time you make a decision in life, the first question you ask yourself is, what is in it for me? That drives you. Everything you do. And John says, that is the lust of the flesh. Now why does this permeate us so much in our culture today? Well, let, me give you some, let me give you some reasons why I believe it does. The idea of selfishness begins by parents doing everything for us. 
They give us everything. They protect us from everything. And that's natural. Parents want something better for their children. But you know what the problem is in our culture today? Parents forget to give them what they had, which is love, discipline, a demand for obedience, and a demand for respect. So often today, parents think that what their children need are more things. Because once again, we have bought into this idea that things make us happy. You know what this leads to, young people? It leads to a lifestyle of manipulation. People are seen as objects. They are devalued. It leads to using people, if you will. It makes it difficult, as I said before, to build lasting relationships. And it leads to all kinds of behavior. That even in an academic setting leads to disintegration of education. One of the greatest problems today that is faced in American education has to do with cheating. Cheating is rampant all the way from high school up through college. Why do people cheat? Because once again they see it in the short term as something that benefits them as an individual. John says then the first great category is the lust of the flesh. Second major area where the culture comes at us. John goes on. And the lust of the eyes. Another word here that might help you would be the word materialism. The lust of the eyes. Materialism. I don't have to tell you that we live today in a culture that epitomizes consumerism all the way from what you buy in the stores to all the way what you expect in a church today. People don't come to church anymore to worship God. They come as consumers. And churches react the same way by attempting to give their congregation not what God tells them they need, but what they think they need in order to hold them as a member of that particular church. We live in a culture today where there's no delayed gratification. The idea of putting something off till we can afford it is something unheard of today. And you know what happens, young people? This produces a softness in our lives. The lust of the eyes, materialism. And look at the last one. The pride of life. Let me give you another term for that. Worldly Security. Boy, don't we spend a lot of time doing that. Trying to make our own little world totally safe and impenetrable. But I'll tell you what, you all had a great object lesson as to how difficult that is to do. How in control of your world were you at 431 January 17th? God taught us a little object lesson, didn't He? He really taught us who is in control. And it sure isn't us. 
University of California at Irvine, the whole staff down there in engineering has spent years trying to figure out how to build freeway overpasses that don't collapse. I don't know if you drove by and saw the freeway before they tore it down. You look at that thing, an absolute mass of steel. There's more steel in it than there is concrete. And you ask yourself, how in the world could this thing ever fall? My point is simply this. We pay people to make our world secure. And we spend millions to make our world secure. And the issue is how secure is our world? How secure is our life in reality? James tells us life is fragile. We're like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. You know, young people, so many of us in this particular area, and I went through it where you are, I don't really feel this way as much anymore, but you know, you tend to look upon yourself as being immortal. You tend to look upon yourself as, yeah, death is way out there in the future, but I'm basically in control. And yet, John tells us in this passage, under the power of the Holy Spirit, that this is precisely what Satan uses in the culture to really keep us from being the salt and light that we need to be. Let me point out some issues that I see in this particular text, if I might. There's some issues here concerning temptation. Let me just make up one point so you understand 1 John. 1 John consists of present continuous verbs all the way through it. What John is talking about here in this whole book is lifestyle. He's not talking about individual acts. He's talking about lifestyle. A better term would be the habit of life. And what John is really saying in this particular passage as you read through it is simply this. Look what he says in verse 15. Love not the world. What he means there is, love not the world as a habit of life. Don't love the cosmos. Don't love the world system as a habit of life. Neither the things that are in the world. Why? If any man love the world as a habit of life, what does John say? The love of the Father is not where? In him. What does that mean? If your lifestyle is characterized by a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The issue for you, young person, might be, are you really saved? Because John says very, very clearly, if any man love the world as a habit of life, as a lifestyle, the love of the Father is not in him. The first issue then we must deal with is the issue of our position. If selfishness, materialism, and worldly security dominate your life, the question, the question for you must be then, am I really, truly a believer? I can't answer that. Only you can. And I think the reason this might sound so foreign to you is, is, is that over the last 150 years in America, we have been raised, really since the time of Charles Finney, on what we call decisional Christianity. The thing that makes a person a Christian is walking an aisle, filling out a card, making a profession, and going back and doing whatever they do. 
And we all know that may or may not be a genuine conversion experience. And the issue simply is this. One of the ways you tell whether or not you're truly born again is right in this text right here. As a habit of life, do you love the world more than you love the Father? Does that mean that you're living in perfection? Absolutely not. Does that mean that you don't use things in the culture? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that your life is not dominated by the culture. A second issue we see in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. This stuff doesn't come from God. That's the point. This does not come from God. Where does it come from? It comes from the system itself. The things of the world do not come from the Father, but Satan uses them within the world system. Just as James said back in chapter 1 of James. Third issue, look at verse 17. The issue of eternity. The issue of eternity. And the world what? What's going to happen to the world? It's going to pass away. You read in Revelation 16 about the big one? The real big one? When the mountains become dust? How many of you, the day after the quake, when we were still having those, those high fours and those low fives, every time we would have one, would look at the hills? What would you see? It looked like a forest fire, wouldn't it? The dust just raising off the, rising off those hills. What do you think will happen when the big one hits? It's going to all be powder. The world is going to pass away. That's what John says. The world passeth away, and the lust of it, all these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are going to pass away. But look at the next part. But he... Now here's the key word. Once again, remember, lifestyle. Lifestyle. Habit of life. That's what John's talking about here. But he that what? Doeth the will of God as a habit of life abides... How long? Why? Because he's born again. A truly born-again person exhibits a lifestyle as a habit of life that does the will of his Father. Young people, what I want you to see first of all this morning, and primarily, if we're called, as Dr. Evans said, to be salt and light, and we're called upon to be light in the culture, you need to understand very clearly the subtleness of Satan and where the challenges are going to come from. Some of you might face head-on assaults in your life by Satan. But I'll tell you, for most of us, it's the daily grind of defending ourselves through the power of the Spirit against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let me give you some helps, if I can, in this battle with temptation or in this battle with the culture. Remember Tony said once again that the battle begins with us. It goes from us to who? Remember what he said? From us to who? Our families. From our families to where? To the church. From the church to where? The community. From the community. I can't do it like he can. From the community, right? To the country to where? The world. So you've got to back it all up. And where does it begin? 
begins with us. Let me give you some daily some hints to have daily victory over temptation. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. One of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 6. Here we have that great chapter on sanctification, on progressive sanctification, on living for Christ. I want you to get something here as we begin to read. And I want to just pull out some things very, very rapidly. Therefore, Paul says in verse 4, we are buried with Him. That is, those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior and Lord, we're buried with Christ by baptism unto death, that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, what happens to us? Even so, we also, Paul says, should what? Walk in newness of life. As Christ was raised with His resurrection body, likewise, we as Christians who have been buried with Him in death and raised with Him in His resurrection now should walk in newness of life. Wow! How in the world do we do that? Paul's giving us a command here. Look at verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, once again, identifying with Christ's death, we shall also in the likeness of His resurrection knowing that the old man is crucified with him and that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth... Now, this is a powerful statement. you actually believe this? Do you really believe this? That henceforth, we should not serve sin. It's interesting that Paul says we cannot serve sin. What does he say? We should not serve sin. We now have the power through our identification with Christ's death and resurrection, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to have daily victory over our culture and over sin. How? Look at verse 11. Here it comes. Likewise, reckon or count ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Young people, listen. That is a daily, moment-by-moment challenge for your life. When you are confronted with the opportunity to sin, this is what should come to your mind. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here comes the command. See, Paul couldn't command you to do this if you did not have the power to respond. Look what he says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in its... Here's the word again. In its lusts. And here it comes. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness. That, the idea of instrument there is a lethal weapon. It's like a sword. It's like some kind of a weapon to kill a person. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness. You don't have to do it. But yield yourselves unto who? God as those who are alive from the dead. Here it is again. You see, you don't have to sin. You can yield yourselves unto God because you have a new nature. Point number one then. Begin with a Spirit-controlled will. Everything that's in this passage has to do with your will. You, will. you will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not to sin when confronted. And that then becomes a habit of life as you continue to apply it. Begin with a Spirit-controlled will. Now go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This will be a big help to you in the kind of culture that we find ourselves living in today as believers. 
to 11. Okay? Paul's talking again here to Timothy. But godliness, and here's a concept, young people, that very few Americans understand. And very few Americans practice. But godliness with what? What? Contentment is great gain. Are you content? Are you content in relationship to Christ? Are you content that He will give you everything that you need? Are you resting in that? And look what Paul says. Kind of hammer on our pride a little bit as American Christians. For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be what? Content. But they that will be rich, it doesn't say they that are rich, but, but those who desire to be rich, who are driven by wealth, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Point number two. Have a God-controlled attitude. A God-controlled attitude toward material things. Are you content? Are you content with what God gives you? Do you understand how to handle these kinds of lusts that we've been talking about? One last one. Go to Philippians chapter 4. And Warren already alluded to this this morning. Go to, go to Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 11. Sorry, verse 10. Paul talking here at the end of his ministry. Look what he says. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, of which you were also mindful, but you lacked the opportunity. That is, you didn't have the opportunity to come alongside of me. Not that I speak in respect of one. I just love this. You think about this, young people, as it relates to the culture in which we find ourselves. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. See, Paul was in a learning process. Paul didn't get here overnight. Paul has learned a lesson about life. For I have learned in whatever state I am in this to be, here's that word again, what? Content. I know how to be abased I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can take it either way. But I'm going to be content. Look how he concludes this. So often this, this verse is taken out of, of context. But if you look back, you can see very clearly what Paul is talking about. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ can give me the strength to be content. Christ can give me the strength to really refute the world cosmos that I find myself living in. Young people, three areas then that you can work on to have victory over the influence of the culture. Number one, begin with a spirit-controlled will. Number two, a God-controlled attitude. And thirdly, Christ as our source of power. I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me. Let me close with, I think, the greatest example in the Scriptures. A very unlikely man who had to contend with a foreign culture. At the age of 13, he went into captivity, spent his whole young life in the court of an idolatrous king, refused to bow his knee to that particular worldview, if you will. And one would have thought because he refused to do all those things that God couldn't use him. But as he matured in the Lord, as he bowed his knee to Jerusalem every single day of his life, God began to use him in a mighty way. The Scriptures tell us in Daniel, the greatest king that ever lived, the greatest, the greatest leader, the greatest Gentile leader of all time, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, over a lifelong period of time, had the opportunity to come into that man's life. A man that in the early chapters of Daniel did nothing but worship himself. And in the end, to make that man a God-fearer. Didn't stop there. Later on in Daniel's elder years, he had the opportunity to be prime minister to Darius of Persia. Did the Persian culture dominate Daniel? Absolutely not. Here was a man that learned exactly what we were talking about this morning. He knew what he faced, but his trust was in God, and God didn't pull him out of that culture. God didn't sit him on the shelf. God used him to be a light on a hill and salt in the world. And young people, that's our challenge today, as Dr. Evans said Wednesday night. Our challenge is to be salt and light, to build God's kingdom. And all I'm counseling you this morning is simply this. Know who the enemy is. Know who the enemy is. It's, Satan is subtle. He's coming at you through the culture. That's how he's going to dim your light. But you know, you don't have to give in. You don't have to give in. You can be content where God has placed you. Why? Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Father, thank You so much for the opportunity just to be able to continue what we've had this week. Father, I would be the first to confess to You that I, I fight this battle every single day of my life. The culture with all of its desires and all of its allures is so powerful. And yet in light of that, Father, You have called us to be salt and You have called us to be light. You have called us to be a city on a hill. And God, I would humbly pray this morning for each young people, that each young person that is in this auditorium today, in this gym, that they might covenant with themselves and with You that through the power of Your Holy Spirit they would be like Daniel. 
that no matter how dark the culture would be or become, they would be a person like Daniel who would make a difference. Thank you for this time in Christ's name.